to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is where we're going to start tonight, the last psalm in book three. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Jerry has been patiently waiting for me to get over with announcements, and he'd be happy to hand you a Bible. I know some are coming from work, and you come here, and perhaps uh, you don't have your Bible with you, so we want to make sure that you can follow with us. We're going to cover Psalm 89, which is the last book of uh, book number three. Remember, 150 psalms that there is five books in the book of Psalm, and book three is Psalm 73 through 89, so we'll finish book three up here tonight and then start book four, Psalm 90, if we get to it tonight, but my plan is to do that. And so, Father, we do ask that you just bless this time in the study of your word. I thank you for those who have come out on this night uh, as the wind has blown, and, and, um, and uh, it's hard sometimes. But Lord, I thank you that we're here and we're in this place. I thank you for a time of worship. I thank you for God's family being here. And Lord, we are tremendously blessed. We have so much to be thankful for. And Lord, uh, your mercy and your faithfulness and your promises that come to pass for us. And we know that as we read this tonight, that this is for us to be encouraged and uplifted and, and Lord, to be drawn close to you and to be reminded of your faithfulness and goodness. So, Lord, bless our hearts, speak to our hearts as we now study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, Psalm 89 is a contemplation of Ethan, the Ezraite. And we read, as we began to look at it last week, we looked at the first two verses, but I'll read it to you again. That I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and with my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever, and your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. And so this psalm is written by Ethan, and perhaps uh, you're wondering who he is. He was one that actually uh, lived during Solomon's reign. You know that David would not build the temple. His son Solomon did, and Solomon would reign during Israel's greatest wealth. There was great prosperity that was in Israel. They had rest from their enemies because David defeated uh, the enemies all around Israel. And so Solomon would build the temple. It was a magnificent temple. Uh, there was uh, tens of thousands of workers, like 150,000 workers for seven years that built the temple. It was overlaid with gold. And so with Solomon reigning for 40 years, there was great peace and, and prosperity and, and power for Israel at that time. And in that reign, we know that Ethan has uh, a brief mention as one being uh, that was noted for his wisdom. And so he was noted above uh, those who were around Solomon. And Solomon was noted, of course, for his wisdom as well. But Solomon, he didn't live out that wisdom. Um, we know that he had uh, a thousand wives and concubines. And, and out of those foreign wives, Solomon uh, would burn incense to uh, the false gods that his foreign wives would worship. He would uh, build altars to them, and he introduced idol worship once again. You see, that's something that David never did. David, he sinned, and we know that he sinned greatly with uh, adultery and, and with murder and, and all the, the things that David did, and he was forgiven. But one thing that David did not do is bow the knee to an idol. And here is Solomon all of a sudden, as it was instructed there in Deuteronomy chapter 17, when you get a king, do not multiply wives because those wives will draw you away from the Lord. 
And so Solomon, with those foreign wives, uh, that's exactly what happened. And all of a sudden, idol worship comes. So the Lord began to chasten uh, Judah, began to chasten Solomon and, and the children of Israel and bring judgment to them. Solomon dies after 40 years of reigning. And we know that during this time of Second Chronicles chapter 12, which scholars believe this is when this psalm was written. It is written during this time of great difficulty, and it speaks this psalm, as we're going to see, of God's faithfulness and how he keeps his promises. And that's a great encouragement to us as we go through this psalm, knowing that God's going to keep his promises, and, and God is going to be there for us. As the psalmist here says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, the God of mercy and grace and and." We know that during that time of Second Chronicles chapter 12, what happened was is that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, begins to reign. And you remember in our studies of, of uh, First Kings and as uh, we looked at Second Chronicles, that it was Rehoboam that he, he would have the people come to him. And, and the people said, Rehoboam, your father Solomon, he really taxed us heavily, and he took our lands, and he took our kids to be servants and, and our you know, cattle, and, and it was a heavy burden, so please ease up on us. So Rehoboam, he went to the elders that were older and, and asked for their advice, and they said, listen, Rehoboam, you serve the people, and it will be well with you. And then he went to his young advisors, and they said, what you need to do is go back to the people and tell them they haven't seen anything yet that you're really going to put this heavy taxation on them. And, and they haven't seen anything yet. And, and Rehoboam, you need to tell them that they're going to be under your thumb. Uh, it's going to be difficult. And so Rehoboam decided that he was going to flex his muscle. He was going to try to rule over the people with a heavy hand. And at that time, the 10 northern tribes said, forget you, Rehoboam. We're going to split away from the nation. So that's when the nation split, and you had the ten northern tribes called the House of Israel, and then Rehoboam was left with the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, which made up the House of Judah and included Jerusalem and the temple. So they went through that difficult time, and as it was Rehoboam that was not a godly king, he had forsaken the law. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 12 that it was the king of Egypt. His name was Shikshak, and he comes with uh, 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen with this great army, and he comes in the, against the fortified cities of Judah, and he comes to Jerusalem, and it was the leader's of the nation of Judah, the house of Judah, that humbled themselves before the Lord. And because the Lord saw that, he would relent and, and, and Egypt would be turned away. But it, what would happen is that Egypt would take the treasuries of the king's house and of the house of God away. And those uh, golden shields that Solomon had made, they took all those golden shields away. So it was a very difficult time in the history of, of Judah in the nation during that time when the nation split and, and then Egypt comes and, and tries to uh, hold them captive and, and take over Judah and, and the Lord in his mercy would turn them away. So the psalmist here is writing about, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. In my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Mercy shall be built up forever, and your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. You know, we can sing that because we have been recipients of God's grace and mercy. Grace means the unmerited favor of God. 
Mercy means not getting what we deserve. And you and I, that we can sing of that in and, and every generation that comes to the Lord because we are free from Egypt, Egypt being a picture of the world. We're no longer held captive by the world, and, and we are free from the world, and we're free from sin, the penalty of sin. And then as we walk with the Lord and walk in the Spirit, we're free from the power of sin in our lives. So we can just rejoice in the mercy of God, not getting what we deserve, because the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we do deserve. But His incredible mercy and grace and faithfulness to us, being faithful to see us through, being faithful to His promises to us. So that's what He's uh, singing about as He starts this psalm. In verse 3, I've made a covenant with my chosen. I've sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then there is that pause. So the psalmist is remembering God's covenant with David that you read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7, right? And David, of course, he wanted to build that temple, but the Lord came to David and said, David, you're not going to build the temple. Your hands are bloodied. You're a man of war, and it's going to be your son, a man of peace, that's going to build the temple. And as David initially heard that, I'm sure that he was disappointed, but the Lord wasn't through with this message. And he said, but David, here's the thing. I'm going to build you a house. And upon the house that I will build that will be established forever, that one's going to come from you that's going to sit on that throne, the Messiah. And your throne's going to be established forever. And David, as he heard that, he was greatly humbled and he just praised the Lord. It was a highlight of David's life. And we see here, even though they're going through difficulties, even though they're going through this, this attack of Egypt and, and the nation is divided, and it seems like, you know, it was just a few years before that, there was great wealth and power and, and prosperity, and all of a sudden, all that's gone. The golden shields that Solomon had that were displayed, all of a sudden, they're gone. The king of Egypt took them away. And so what Rehoboam did is he made these shields made of bronze, you know, and, and he would bring them in. He, he was trying to somehow maintain some kind of, of prosperity or, or, you know, just show or whatever. But all that was gone, the glory, the gold, everything. And yet God was going to be faithful to keep his covenant with David. And Messiah is going to sit on the throne of David. And your throne is going to be established. That's why when you go to the gospel narratives, when the people would cry out to Jesus, son of David, that was a messianic term. They knew that he was going to come from the seed of David. So the psalmist continues as he remembers, you've made a covenant with my chosen, and you've established it and built up your throne to all generations. And then that pause, and the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. In verse 6, for who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? And who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. You know, I was thinking about this today, and I think it's worth considering as we look at verses 6 and 7. You know, who can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? And then he says something very important for us to consider that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. And I pray in the assembly of this place, of the saints that are gathered here, Calvary Chapel Greeley, that we will remember that we need to reverence him 
that we need to fear the Lord, to reverence Him and honor Him. You see, that's not talked about a whole lot today in the church and, and the fear of the Lord. And, and it's important because we see all throughout the Scriptures that we are told that we are to fear the Lord. And, and what does it mean to fear the Lord? It's not an unhealthy terror of the Lord, and, and, and it isn't that, and, and I'm afraid that God's going to zap me. Unfortunately, I've talked to Christians who believe that God is just a judgmental God who's going to get them, and God's judging me, and he's just waiting for me to get out of line. It's kind of like a mean old man, you know, in heaven, leaning over the banister with a long beard and lightning bolts on his side, waiting for you to get out of line so he can zap you. And unfortunately, there are people that have that terror. I've talked to them. They're so afraid. And I want you to realize something, that those who come to me who are believers and say, God's judging me, remember this, that God took the judgment through Jesus Christ for you. And as he hung on that cross, he took the judgment that you and I deserve. And always keep that in mind. Now, the Lord will chasten us. And why does he chasten us, discipline us? Because he loves us. And that's what Hebrews declares. Out of his love, he chastens his children. Just as parents, that we have to discipline our children. Why do we do it? Because we hate them? Because we want to bring judgment on them? No, because we love them. Because we want them to do well in life. We want them to know what is right and wrong. We want them to grow up to be responsible. We want them to learn in life. And the only way to do that is to discipline them. You know, one of the things that I was talking to uh, at the Refresh Conference uh, is talking about ministry in the family. And one of the things that I said is that you cannot disciple your children unless you discipline your children. You've got to discipline your children if you're going to disciple them. And, and we do it out of love. So that's why we do it. And it's a, a father who is good and just and right who will chasten us and discipline out of his love for us. And so to fear him means to reverence him, to honor him. We worship and we believe in awesome, incredible, all-knowing, all-creator, all-glorious, all-powerful God who created everything. And he is to be honored and revered, and we are to Fear the name of the Lord. It's healthy for us to do that. You see, the reason that I'm mentioning that, because I think it can be lost. And I was, you know, not long ago, I was listening to someone who was teaching, kind of somebody who's young and up and coming, and it just brings a little cringe to me when I hear teaching of, of somebody who, I don't know if they're trying to be a little hip or what, but they're kind of like, you know, I was facing this situation, and I said, to God, man, what's up with that? And hey, bro, you know, really? And, and I, it just makes me cringe a little bit. Hey, bro, you know, God's not your bro, all right? <laughs> and I think that we need to remember to have a little bit of reverence. As a matter of fact, we are to revere him. And as it says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. We can be honest to the Lord when we're going through difficulties, when we don't understand what's going on, but we still revere him. We reverence him, don't we? That, Lord, you know everything. 
and you are great and you're all powerful and Lord I know that you love me and your promises are true for me and we can in the honesty of our hearts we can share our struggles with him he knows it anyway but to know that he is good and he is just and he's all powerful and he loves us and he's going to bring his promises to pass for you and for me and he's going to show his faithfulness to us so it's important for us to keep that in mind and the psalmist continues in verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? And your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea, and when it waves rise, you still them. And you have broken Rahab, or it might be translated Egypt, in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. You know, it's not really recorded there in Second Chronicles chapter 12 what happened to Shishak and his mighty army and, and them turning back and Lord showing mercy to the house of Judah. But here I think it gives us some insight that, that you've broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You've scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. And you see it's the psalmist is just speaking about God's might and, and faithfulness to his people. It's not our might, but it's his might. And we continue in verse 11, the heavens are yours and the earth also are yours. The world and all its fullness, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. Uh, Tabor is a mountain in the middle of the country and, and Hermon is a, the highest point in Israel today, the very northern port, uh, uh, point of the nation. And, and those two mountains, there's a debate uh, where exactly Jesus was transfigured, the Mount of Transfiguration. It doesn't tell us uh, the name of the mountain, but some believe that it was on Tabor. Uh, I think it was Mount Hermon on the northern part of the nation because right before the Mount of Tr Transfiguration, where Jesus took Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain, and he was transfigured uh, there uh, with Elijah and Moses and shining like the sun, uh, glorified. And, and, and there they're discussing about Jesus' impending death at Jerusalem. And, and we know that the, the disciples were asleep and they woke up and, and caught a glimpse of it. And Peter says, let's make a tabernacle, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And all of a sudden the voice of the Father was heard that this is my son, hear him. Like, Peter, don't put my son on the same level as Elijah and Moses. But I think that it was Mount Hermon because they were at Caesarea Philippi just right before that, which is at the base of Mount Hermon. We know that Caesarea Philippi is there because they've excavated it, no doubt about it. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River that comes from Mount Hermon. So Mount Hermon is a very tall mountain, about 9,000 feet. Gets snow up there. they got a ski area up there so they can go skiing. It's a lot of snow in the wintertime. They also got a military base up there so they can look into downtown Damascus, which is only about 40 miles away. So it's a very fascinating place. And so here they're talking about how e the creation, even uh, Tabor, Hermon, rejoice in your name. In verse 13, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand and high is your right hand. And righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And mercy and truth go before your face. And blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shields belong to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. 
So again, the psalmist Ethan reminds us that God is all-powerful, speaking of his strength and righteousness and mercy and truth and how blessed we are, those of us who follow him. And then in verse 19, then you spoke in a vision to your holy one and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David, verse 20, with my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, and also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. And so as he is speaking about David here in these verses, you know, David was one that had a heart for God, and God blessed him mightily. But I want to draw attention there to, to verse 20. I found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. I, I think you probably know this in your studies of First and Second Samuel, but David was anointed three times. Three times he was anointed. The first time is when it was Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 that went to Jesse's house to anoint the new king. And David's out with the sheepfold out there and, and out in the field, and all the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, and he says, none of these are the new king. Uh, do you have another son? And they said, well, David the youngest is out with the sheep. And they brought David in, and, and Samuel said, this is the one the one that I'm going to anoint as God has chosen him, who has a heart for God. He's going to be the new king of Israel. And so he was anointed the first time there at home. And we know that David didn't ascend to the throne right away. As a matter of fact, he would go through years of difficulties and trials and persecution by the hands of Saul. And he was running in the wilderness, and his mighty men would surround him. But after about 12 years of that, finally Saul, he dies on Mount Gilboa, as you know, from the end of First Samuel in the first chapter of Second Samuel, and him and his sons, Jonathan, and they were defeated by the Philistines. Saul uh, would end up dying. So David at that time was anointed a second time, but he was anointed as the king of Judah. That was his tribe where he was from. And he ruled in Hebron for about seven and a half years. So there he was in Hebron as he was anointed the second time in the house of Saul and the other 11 tribes would follow, and the house of Saul was getting weaker and weaker, and the house of David was getting stronger and stronger. And finally, after seven years of being in Hebron, the other 11 tribes come to David and said, we recognize, we see, we know God's hand is on you, that you're leading the nation, and you are truly called to be the leader of Israel, the shepherd, all of Israel. So they anointed him a third time. You might be thinking, so what, Pastor Jeff? One of the things that I try to encourage, particularly young men that want to go into the ministry, that want to pastor perhaps someday and pastor a church, I always want to encourage them. But I, I remind them of this verse, that David first who was anointed at home. And make sure that you make your family a priority. And that is a word for any of us that are involved in ministry. That includes me. That I want to make sure that my priority is at home, ministering to my wife and to my kids, that as I am able to do that, then I'm able to come here and minister to you. But I want to make sure that, that I'm ministering to them, 
that my house is in order, that, that you know, my kids are under submission as, as the qualifications of an elder is told to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we have a perfect family, but it means that I have a responsibility to them and to love my wife as Christ loves the church. He didn't say love the church as Christ loved the church. And I know that there is a love that a shepherd is to have, but to love my wife as Christ loves the church is a priority that is given to us as men as we are married to make sure that things are right at home. So there's that anointing. But then as you desire to, to move forward in ministry, then make sure that you're also ministering to those of influence, your family and, and, and those who have been around you, your peers. Just as David, he was from the tribe of Judah. And they came and said, hey, you're a brother uh, and we're going to make you the king. And so David was a blessing for them for seven years. And so David, you would think all the things that he went through, the trials and difficulties, that all the other tribes would recognize it, but it took a little while. And then he became the king of Israel and he was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And all the other kings of Judah were compared to David. And the standard was David, who had a heart after God. And you see that very clearly in, as you read 2 Chronicles, as you read 2 Samuel. You know, 1 Kings, you know, as the other kings came along, they, they, they were held up to David's heart for God. And you see, it's important for us, and particularly I tell young men, that make sure that you don't get in a big hurry, that things are right at home, and that you're ministering to those around you, your peers, your friends, and, and maybe you want to be in ministry, and you have a ministry at those at work, and, and maybe other family members, and, and don't forget to minister to them. And then if the Lord wants you to shepherd a group of people or shepherd you know, a, a, a church someday, if he would ever call any uh, of us to do that or any young men to do that, that don't despise the day of small things. And you see, don't think that, you know, right away I've got to move into, you know, this mighty ministry. Take care of the family first. Make sure that you're ministering to those around you and those, those influences and peers and, and friends and coworkers. Uh, if you're going to work, that's your ministry right now. And then as you're faithful in the little things, God will give you greater things to do. And I don't know, maybe it's a word for somebody here today that, or maybe listening later. You know, it was Jesus that told Peter, that Peter, I want to borrow your boat and just row out a little bit. And that's what Peter did. He had been fishing all night. And, and so Jesus came to him and says, I want to borrow your boat. Can you row out a little ways? And he, Peter did. And he he stopped there, and there Jesus would speak to the people. And it was the natural amphitheater there, the, the Sea of Galilee. It's in a bowl, and you know how your voice travels across the water? Guys, any of us or gals that go fishing, I always tell my kids, you got to be careful because what you say is going to be heard clear across the lake, right? The voice travels, and it, it just you know amplifies and bounces on that water. Well, that's what Jesus used. He used the water you know, as, you know, a sound system and would preach to the people. And so he's preaching. I wonder if, you know, Peter just kind of wasn't sitting there in the boat going, all right, how long is this going to be? I'm tired of been fishing all night. I don't know. Maybe he was memorized by what Jesus was saying. 
And when Jesus was done, he turned to Peter and said, okay, now I want you to go out to the deep and drop down your nets. And Peter said, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. Go into the deep, drop your nets, and you know what happened. Caught a lot of fish. And now you're going to be fishers of men, Peter. That's what I want to make you. You know, sometimes I talk to guys that want to immediately just go out to the deep. And a lot of times the Lord says to us, can you just go out a little ways? Can you just be faithful in that? Can you just do that? And know that the Lord is going to work in you and through you. And that's what he did with David. That's what he did with the mighty men of faith. Moses was 40 years herding sheep. It wasn't even his own sheep. He was herding sheep on the backside of the desert. It was his father-in-law's sheep before he saw that burning bush. And the Lord said, I've chosen you, Moses, to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. We know that it was Joshua that was Moses' assistant for 40 years. He would be at the base of the mountain while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God and the glory of God and how incredible. And, and you know, I wonder if there was any times that, that Joshua was just there, but he was being faithful. He was being faithful to stay at the base of the mountain. And Moses' assistant and Moses would go out of the camp and set up his tabernacle meeting. And it says that Joshua would be there and watch. He was there serving Moses, and he was there learning. And then finally Moses says, Joshua, I'm going to die. I'm not going to go into the promised land. You're the one that's going to lead the children of Israel across the river into the promised land. We know that it was Paul the Apostle. Uh, he was one that as he was converted and he was told that you're going to be a chosen vessel of mine to preach to kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel to your brethren. And it didn't happen right away for the great apostle Paul. And, and he would preach in Damascus and they wanted to, you know, throw him out of the synagogue. And, and so he would go to Arabia for three years and he comes back to the synagogue in Damascus. And the second time uh, they wanted to kill him. So he has to escape out of Damascus over the wall at night in Damascus, he goes to Jerusalem. The apostles are holding him out at arm's length. They're going, listen, isn't this, you know, Saul, the one who uh, came against the church and persecuted many of us here in Jerusalem, caused a great persecution? And Barnabas said, it's real. He's converted. He's, he's a believer. And so he went into the synagogue, uh, Paul, at that time, and they wanted to kill him in Jerusalem. So the apostles sent him on a boat to go to Tarsus. And there in Tarsus, I'm sure... As he lost his religious status, no longer a Pharisee, a Pharisee, an outcast, you know, his, his way of living, all of that, and he had to learn to make tents. And he was there for years, just being faithful, being there, being ready, and all of a sudden a knock comes on the door, as we talked about on Sunday. And it was Barnabas that said, hey, Paul, there's revival that's broken out in Antioch and Syria. Come and teach the brethren. And then shortly after that, he would begin his missionary journeys. Maybe the Lord might be speaking to some of you. Just go out a little bit. Be faithful in that. And I'll give you greater things to do. And you don't despise the day of small things. But know that the Lord's going to see you through and he's going to work in you and through you and what he wants to accomplish. And just as we saw on Sunday, it is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasures.
and being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work will bring it to completion. He's going to complete that work. And that's what the psalmist here is really talking about, that God is faithful, and he's going to establish your throne, David. It's going to be established forever. He's going to see us through, even though we're going through difficulties, even though we're being chastened. And so he would establish uh, who my hand shall establish him and my arm shall strengthen him. In verse 24, but my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him and in my name his horn shall be exalted. And also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. And he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In verse 28, my mercy will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. So here the psalmist is just writing about, speaking how all that God had promised David and how he was going to bless David. And then in verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, listen, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever. And his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky and in the meditation. I'd like to show these verses, verses 30 through 37, of those who hold to the replacement theology. The replacement theology that says that God's through with Israel and doesn't have a purpose or a plan for them. And they forfeited the, the covenant that God made with, with David and with them and and. So there is no future plan for Israel, purpose that God has for them, because they rejected the Messiah. And as we know from the scriptures, God said that I will bring this to pass. And here he says something, if you forsake my law and don't walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and don't keep my commandments, I'm going to punish them. You know, their transgression with the rod and iniquity with stripes. And they would go through great difficulty because they rejected the Messiah. And we know that shortly after Jesus' death on the cross, that Jerusalem would be surrounded by the Roman army and, and Jerusalem would be destroyed and the second temple would be destroyed to where not one stone was left upon another. And they would be scattered across the whole world among the nations. They didn't have a nation for 2,000 years. But God is faithful to bring them back into the land and he's going to keep his covenant with them. You see, the book of Romans, you guys are studying it, it's, it's such an incredible book and, uh, because it, it's wonderful theology as, as you read the first eight chapters, that, that chapter one, the heathen is a sinner, and chapter two, the, the Hebrew, the self-righteous, is a sinner too. So chapter three, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And the wages of sin is death. And then the introduction to the doctrine of justification, that we are justified freely by his grace. That word justification is a legal term. It means literally just as if I've never sinned. Justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, forgiven. And how we need 
to respond to the gospel. The whole theme of the book of Romans is that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. There's power in the gospel. Folks, we should never, ever be ashamed of the gospel. I cannot for the life of me understand why any pastor would want to water down the gospel message or be seeker-sensitive about the gospel message. It's such good news, isn't it? Aren't you thankful that somebody gave you the gospel message to say that, hey, we're sinners in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ. He loves you, and he came and died for you and provided for you. I was so elated when that message was first given to me to where I can understand it. So there's power in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it for salvation for whoever believes. We are justified freely by his grace. Good news. Chapters 3 and 4 and 5, and then chapters 6, 7, and 8, sanctification. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 6, certainly not. We're free from that. We walk in the newness of life. Reckon it to be so, the apostle says, but yet we struggle in the flesh, don't we? Chapter 7 and then chapter 8, which is one of the most glorious chapters of all of the scripture Paul goes on and he says we're, we're free, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and, and that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We have the spirit of adoption. Abba means that Papa, literally, because we are sons and daughters of the living God, we can cry out to him. We belong to him. We're joint heirs with Christ, joint heirs with him. The riches of heaven and what is ours for eternity, because we are adopted sons and daughters, is something that we cannot fully comprehend. It is so glorious. And Paul's just reiterating these truths. And then he ends chapter 8 by just breaking out in praise. And he says, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication is all good things. So the Lord desires to give us that which is good. And he goes on and he would say, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, he finishes in strong terms that, you know, God's everlasting love, nothing can separate it from us. Chapters 12 through 16, now that you're established in justification and sanctification, this is what we do for the Lord. So what's chapters 9, 10, and 11 all about? People say that it seems like it's kind of out of place. All of a sudden, Paul starts talking about Israel, but it isn't out of place. Because Paul then in chapter 9, as he's thinking about the love of God and nothing can separate us from the love of God, then he begins to speak about, oh, I, I have deep sorrow in my heart for my brother. And he goes on to say, for I wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brother and my countrymen according to the flesh. And he would talk about the past of Israel, how God sovereignly chose them. And then chapter 10, he talks about how they need the gospel and how they need to respond to the gospel. And he says, whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So chapter 9, sovereignty. Chapter 10, equality. You see, it's not replacement gospel. They too need the gospel. But then chapter 11, he says, 
Does God cast away his people? Certainly not. And he goes and he talks about there's a future. And blindness has come in part to Israel till the fullness of the Gentile has come in. And then all of Israel will be saved in that day. God's going to keep his promise. And I think that it's inserted in there to help us be reminded that they will be grafted in once again. That there's a purpose for them. And God keeps his promises and he is faithful. And that brings comfort to me. Because I know that God will keep his promises with me. And he's going to be faithful to me to see me through. And it's same with you. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. So here the psalmist is writing about that in these psalms here. And, and it's very important for us to understand that. I, I think it's important for us to consider that here tonight. But then as we continue, as I get back to Psalm 89 here, that we read in verse 38. But you have cast off and abhorred, and you have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your, your servant, and, and you have profaned his crown and, and by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought this stronghold to ruins, and all who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. They have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and has cast his throne down to the ground. In days of his youth I have shortened. You have covered him with shame. And so even in difficulties and trials, we wonder how God's faithfulness and promises are going to be worked out. And that's what the psalmist is expressing in verse 46. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? And what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? And Lord, where are your former loving kindness, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples, and then with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. And blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. So he's struggling because he sees the destruction, what's happening, the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. You know, when David did sin with Bathsheba, Nathan came to him and said, David, you are forgiven. And David, didn't I take you from the sheepfold? Didn't I defeat the enemies all around you? Didn't I make you a great name in all the earth? And if that wasn't enough, I would have done so much more. Listen, there's consequences to sin. You know, sometimes people will say to me, Pastor Jeff, you know, I know you're busy and I know, you know, that, you know, there's a lot going on and I'm sure you're tired. You know what wears on me more than anything? Seeing how sin has such a devastating effect on families and people that I care about. How families are destroyed because of sin. Marriages. Relationships strained and severed. Terrible consequences that happen because of sin. And you see, that's what the psalmist here is talking about. The psalmist is saying, oh Lord, how long? 
Yeah, we've been cast down. We've sinned. But know this, that the Lord desires to do so much more in your lives. And he says, don't get involved in sin. Don't commit sin. Don't go down that road because it's going to bring harm and destruction to your life. There is forgiveness. But there's also consequences that happen as well and repercussions that we experience that can be very negative and very difficult. So the psalmist is weary here. He's burdened because of it. But I do want to quickly just, in verse 47, remember how short my time is. You see, Moses is going to talk about that as we go into the Psalm 90 here. It's book four. It's a prayer of Moses, the, the man of God. And how would you like to be known as the man of God? Isn't that a need to be known. I, I want to be known as a man of God. I'm sure that guys, you do, and, and, and ladies, you want to be known as a woman of God. But this would be the oldest psalm as we start book four here that would be written, you know, 1500 B.C. And we do read that in verse one, Moses, he writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you have formed the earth in the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he's speaking of the eternal existence of God, a dwelling place to all generations. And we want to proclaim him in all generations, don't we? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You want a message to every generation, to every culture? It's the message of the cross. I will draw all men to myself. And that's a message that all of us can give. We want to proclaim that, don't we, to all generations and how this generation so desperately needs to hear the message of the gospel. So proclaim from everlasting to everlasting that you are God, speaking of the eternal existence of God, and you turn man to destruction, verse 3, and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep, and in the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cast down and withers. Our lives are brief, aren't they? Our time is short, verse 47 of the previous psalm. And we know that James would talk about how our lives are but a vapor. Peter says a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. God's eternal existence compared to man's short existence here on this earth. Time is short. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. Listen, there is no secret sins. Oh, it might be to other people. Hiding it from your spouse from your kids, from your boss, from your friends. You might be able to do that for a short time, but your sin will find you out. And know that God sees it. For all your days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh, and the days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? As for the fear of you, is, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. 
Our lives fly away. Life is short on this side of eternity. And where I want to encourage you tonight, as I know for me, and I'm sure it's your prayer as well, is I don't want to waste time. I don't want to get so caught up in trivial things and things that don't really matter, and, and I can easily do that. Time is short. Remember Paul said in Ephesians, redeem the time, for the days are evil. And I want to keep priority the things of the Lord. I want to invest in, in the Lord and, and store up my treasure in heaven. I want to serve him because what we do for Christ, that's what's going to last for all eternity. And the gold shields are going to go away. They're going to be left in this world. And what we do for him is what really matters. I know that we have jobs and businesses and we have children that we're raising and we have things that we do and we enjoy doing certain things, but I pray in everything that we do that, Lord, you're the priority of that and I want to honor you. And, Lord, you're the priority of my life to be where you want me to be, doing what you want me to do and growing in you and knowing you and loving you because time is short and the reason I'm kind of emphasizing this a little bit tonight because I know the stupid seduction of the world that can pull any of us away into things that are trivial and don't really matter in eternity's perspectives and views. Keep the Lord the priority and preeminent in your life and every area of your life. Teach us to number our days. He says here, you know, our days have passed, and, and the days of our lives are 70 years. By reason of strength, they are of 80 years. Heck, <laughs> kind of amazing. What's the average lifespan? About 70-something for men and close to 80 for women. He says you got 70 years. If you're doing good, you got 80 years. Compare that to eternity, it's not very long. So what are our priorities? What is really the priorities of our lives? And it's something, an honest evaluation for all of us. And maybe they be the things of the Lord. And return, O oh Lord, how long? That's my prayer every day. Lord, return. How long? You got to come back very soon, the way this world is going, and have compassion on your servants. And O oh, satisfy us early in your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the glory of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time tonight. And, Lord, these wonderful psalms to really put things in perspective to really help us to realize that time is short. And in this life, as we go through it, you will be faithful. You love us. You'll keep your promises, and you want to do so much. And Lord, maybe to the world it isn't much, but to you it is. Wherever you have us, wherever you planted us, whatever you have for us, and, Lord, that we would know as you teach us the number of days that we may have a heart of wisdom. And I just want to pray right now for anybody who may be listening on live stream or in this 
building listening to this message or later on the radio, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that he loves you and sin has separated us from him, the wages of sin is death, as we've talked about tonight. But Jesus came and died for your sins. He took the judgment that you deserve upon himself on that cross. And then he cried, it is finished. He was put into a tomb. He rose again after three days. He's alive. Sitting at the right hand of the Father. And just as we talked about on Sunday, that his name is exalted above every other name. He is your salvation. There's no other salvation. There's no other one who died for you, for your sins, and then proved and validated it by rising from the grave and conquering sin and death. Only Jesus. And he loves you. Will you come to him? Will you cry out to him? If that means anything to anyone tonight, at this time, you pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I come to you a sinner in need of you, the Savior of the world. Save me of my sins. Forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me, that you loved me. You rose again. You conquered sin and death. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. Lord, thank you for forgiving me and help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if anybody here tonight made that decision, as we close the service, I want you to come up and tell me the decision that you made. But for all of us, may we just continue on with you. Be faithful in the little things. And don't despise the day of small things. Because they are very important to you, Lord. To allow you to work in us and through us and in this church. Lord, I know that in this church as we grow, there are challenges. Lord, we need you because our strength isn't in numbers. Our strength isn't in anything but you, Lord. A group of people that love you and rely on you. Lord, we are in days where we need to be a light. And from generation to generation, proclaim your mercy and your truth to a lost and dying world. May that always be the focus and the main thing here. So, Lord, bless her evening. Take us home. Lord, help us to just be a light where we're going to be tomorrow. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. God is good. Would you please stand?